Section 31 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 31, The First Crusade, A.D. 1096 to 1099, by Sir George W. Cox, Part 1. Religious feeling in the 11th century rose to a great pitch of enthusiasm, and led men of various nations, with still more various motives and aims in worldly affairs, to pursue one common end with their whole heart. Between the years 1096 and 1270, these attempts of Christian nations to rescue the Holy Land from the infidels, as the Mahometans were called, added a wholly new character of human enterprise to the world's history. At the time, in the middle of the 11th century, when the Seljuks, a Turkish tribe of Western Asia, had overrun Syria and Asia Minor, throwing the East into a state of anarchy, Europe was beginning to adopt modes of settled order. Through the Byzantine Empire, great numbers of pilgrims for centuries had passed to visit Palestine. With the improved condition of the Western nations, which led to an extension of commerce in the East, the pilgrimage to that part of the world acquired a new importance. As early as 1064, a caravan of 7,000 pilgrims made their way to the neighborhood of Jerusalem, where they narrowly escaped destruction by the Bedouins, their rescue being effected by a Saracen emir. In 1070, the Seljuks took possession of Jerusalem, inflicting hardships on the pilgrims by intolerable exactions, insult, and plunder. Besides outraging Christian sentiment, they ruined the commerce of the Western nations. Throughout Europe arose the cry for vengeance, and men's minds were fully prepared for an attempt to conquer Palestine when their leaders began to preach the sacred duty of delivering the Holy Sepulchre from the hands of the infidels. At the Council of Clermont in 1094, Pope Urban II depicted the miseries of Christians in Palestine and, with a power of eloquence unsurpassed in his day, called upon those who heard him to wipe off from the face of the earth the impurities which caused them, and to lift their oppressed fellow Christians from the depths into which they had been trampled. He urged them to take up arms in the service of the cross, at the same time setting before them the temporal, no less than the spiritual, advantages that would accrue from the conquest of a land flowing with milk and honey, and which, he said, should be divided among them. He likewise offered them full pardon for all their sins. The enthusiasm of his hearers burst all bounds, and with one voice they cried, God wills it, God wills it. To all parts of Europe the fervor spread. The Pope was powerfully aided by an earnest and eloquent, if ignorant, monk, Peter the Hermit of Amiens, who declared that he would rouse the martial spirit of Europe in the cause, and he himself was the first, with whatsoever of misguided zeal, to lead the way to the Holy Land. The Crusades are so called from the simple circumstance that the badge chosen for the movement was the cross, which Pope Urban bade the Christian warriors wear on their breasts or on their shoulders, as the sign of him who died for the salvation of their souls, and as the pledge of a vow that could never be recalled. In the enterprise to which Latin Christendom stood committed, the several nations or countries of Europe took equal parts, or, rather, no nation, as such, took any part in it at all. And in this fact we have the explanation of that want of coherent action, and even decent or average generalship, which is commonly seen in national undertakings. 
For the crusade, there was no attempt at a commissariat, no care for a base of supplies, and the crusading hosts were a collection of individual adventurers who either went without making any provisions for their journey or provided for their own needs and those of their followers from their own resources. The number of these adventurers was naturally determined by the political conditions of the country from which they came. In Italy, the struggle between the Pope and the anti-Pope went far toward chilling enthusiasm, and the recruits for the crusading army came chiefly from the Normans who had followed Robert Guiscard to the sunny southern lands. The Spaniards were busied with a crusade nearer home and were already pushing back to the south the Mahometan dominion which had once threatened to pass the barriers of the Pyrenees and carry the crescent to the shores of the Baltic Sea. About ten years before the Council of Clermont, the Moslem dynasty of Toledo had been expelled by Alfonso, king of Galicia. The kingdom of Cordova had fallen twenty years earlier, 1065, and while Peter the Hermit was hurrying hither and thither through the countries of northern Europe, the Christians of Spain were winning victories in Mercia, and the land was ringing with the exploits of the dauntless Cid, Roy Diaz de Bavar. By the Germans, the summons to the rescue of the Holy Sepulchre was received with comparative coldness. The partisans of emperors, who had been humbled to the dust by the predecessors of Urban, if not by himself, were not vehemently eager to obey it. The bishops of Salzburg, Passau, and Strasbourg, the aged Duke Guelph of Bavaria, had undertaken the toilsome and perilous journey. Not one of them saw their homes again, and their death in the distant east was not regarded by their countrymen as an encouragement to follow their example. In England, the English were too much weighed down by the miseries of the conquest, the Normans too much occupied in strengthening their position, and the king, William the Red, more ready to take advantage of the needs of his brother Robert than to incur any risks of his own. The great movement came from the lands extending from the Scheldt to the Pyrenees. Franks and Normans alike made ready with impetuous haste for the great adventure, and tens of thousands who could not wait for the formation of something like a regular army hurried away under leaders as frantic as themselves to their inevitable doom. Little more than half the time allowed for the gathering of the Crusaders had passed away when a crowd of some 60,000 men and women, neither caring nor thinking about the means by which their ends could be attained, insisted that the hermit Peter should lead them at once to the holy city. Mere charity may justify the belief that some, even among these, may have been folk of decent lives, moved by the earnest conviction that their going to Jerusalem would do some good, that the vast majority looked upon their vow as a license for the commission of any sin, there can be no moral doubt, that they exhibited not a single quality needed for the successful prosecution of their enterprise is absolutely certain. With a foolhardiness equal to his ignorance, Peter undertook the task in which he was aided by Walter the Penniless, a man with some pretensions to the soldier-like character, but the utter disorder of this motley host made it impossible for them to journey long together. At Cologne they parted company, and 15,000 under the penniless Walter made their way to the frontiers of Hungary, while Peter led onward a host which swelled gradually on the march to about 40,000. Another army or horde of perhaps 20,000 marched under the guidance of Emiko, Count of Leiningen, a third under that of the monk Gottschalk, a man not notorious for the purity or disinterestedness of his motives. Behind these came a rabble, it is said, of 200,000 men, women, and children, preceded by a goose and a goat, or, as some have supposed, 
by banners on which, as symbols of the mysterious faith of Gnostics and Politians, the likeness of these animals was painted. In this vile horde, no pretense was kept up of order or of decency. Sinning freely, it would seem, that grace might abound, they plundered and harried the lands through which they marched, while three thousand horsemen, headed by some counts and gentlemen, were not too dignified to act as their attendants and to share their spoil. But if they had no scruple in robbing Christians, their delight was to prove the reality of their mission as soldiers of the cross by plundering, torturing, and slaying Jews. The crusade against the Turk was interpreted as a crusade directed not less explicitly against the descendants of those who had crucified the Redeemer. The streets of Verdun and Treves and of the great cities on the Rhine ran red with the blood of their victims, and if some saved their lives by pretended conversions, many more cheated their persecutors by throwing their property and their persons either into the rivers or into the consuming fires. A space of 600 miles lay between the Austrian frontier and Constantinople, and across the dreary waste the followers of Walter the Penniless struggled on, destitute of money and rousing the hostility of the inhabitants whom they robbed and ill-used. In Bulgaria, their misdeeds provoked reprisals which threatened their destruction, and none, perhaps, would have reached Constantinople if the imperial commander at Nisus had not rescued them from their enemies, supplied them with food, and guarded them through the remainder of their journey. These suckers involved some costs, and the costs were paid by the sale of unarmed men among the pilgrims, and especially of the women and children, who were seized to provide the necessary funds. Of those who formed the train of the hermit Peter, 7,000 only, it is said, reached Constantinople. Of such a rabble rout, the emperor Alexius needed not to be afraid. He had already seen and encountered far larger armies of Normans, Turks, and Romans, and he now extended to this vanguard of the hosts of Latin Christendom a hospitality which was almost immediately abused. They had refused to comply with his request that they should quietly await the arrival of their fellow crusaders, and consulting the safety of his people not less than his own, he induced them to cross the Bosporus and pitch their camp on Asiatic soil, the land which they had come to wrest from the unbelievers. Alexius wished simply to be rid of their presence. They had to deal with an enemy still more crafty and formidable in the Seljukian Sultan David. The vagrants whom Peter and Walter had brought thus far on the road to Jerusalem were scattered about the land in search of food, and it was no hard task for David to cheat the main body with the false tidings that their companions had carried the walls of Nice, and were reveling in the pleasures and spoils of his capital. The doomed horde rushed into the plain which fronts the city, and a vast heap of bones alone remained to tell the story of the great catastrophe, when the forces which might more legitimately claim the name of an army passed the spot where the Seljukian had entrapped and crushed his victims. In this wild expedition, not less, it is said, than 300,000 human beings had already paid the penalty of their lives. Still, the first crusade was destined to accomplish more than any of the seven or eight crusades which followed it, and this measure of success it achieved probably because none of the great European sovereigns took part in it. The task of setting up a Latin kingdom in Palestine was to be achieved by princes of the second order. Of these, the foremost and the most deservedly illustrious was Godfrey, of Bouillon in the Ardennes, a kinsman of the Counts of Boulogne, and Duke of Lotharingen, Lorraine. In the service of the Emperor Henry IV, the enemy or the victim of Hildebrand, he had been the first to mount the walls of Rome and cleave his way into the city. 
he might now hope that his crusading vow would be accepted as an atonement for his sacrilege. Speaking the Frank and Teutonic dialects with equal ease, he exercised by his bravery, his wisdom, and the uprightness of his life an influence which brought to his standard, it is said, not less than 80,000 infantry and 10,000 horsemen, together with his brothers Baldwin and Eustace, Count of Boulogne. Among the most conspicuous of Godfrey's colleagues was Hugh, Count of Vermandois. With him may be placed the Norman Duke Robert, whose carelessness had lost him the crown of England, and who had now pawned his duchy for a pittance scarcely less paltry than that for which Esau bartered away his birthright. The number of the great chiefs who led the pilgrims from northern Europe is completed with the names of Robert, Count of Flanders, and of Stephen, Count of Chartres, Troyes, and Blois. Foremost, by virtue of his title and office, among the leaders of the southern bands was the papal legate Adhemar, Imar, Bishop of Puy, a leader rather as guiding the councils of the army than as gathering soldiers under his banner. A hundred thousand horse and foot attested, we are told, the greatness, the wealth, and the zeal of Raymond, Count of Toulouse, Lord of Auvergne and Languedoc, who had grown old in warfare. Less tinged with the fanatical enthusiasm of his comrades, and certainly more cool and deliberate in his ambition, Bohemond, son of Robert Guiscard, looked to the crusade as a means by which he might regain the vast regions extending from the Dalmatian coast to the northern shores of the Aegean. Nay, if we are to believe William of Malmesbury, he urged Urban to set forward the enterprise for the very purpose, partly of thus recovering what he was pleased to regard as his inheritance, and in part of enabling the pontiff to suppress all opposition in Rome. Guiscard had left his Apulean domains to a younger son, and Bohemond was resolved, it would seem, to add to his principality of Tarentum a kingdom which would make him a formidable rival of the eastern emperor. Far above Bohemond rises his cousin Tancred, the son of the Marquis Odo, surnamed the Good, and of Emma, the sister of Robert Guiscard. In Tancred was seen the embodiment of those peculiar sentiments and modes of thought which gave birth to the Crusades, and to which the Crusades in their turn imparted marvelous strength and splendor. The miserable remnant of 3,000 men who escaped from the field of blood before the city of the Seljukian Sultan found a refuge in Byzantine territory about the time when the better appointed armies of the Crusaders were setting off on their eastward journey. The most disciplined of these troops set out with a vast following from the banks of the Meuse and the Moselle under Godfrey of Bouillon, who led them safely and without opposition to the Hungarian border. Here the armies of Hungary barred the way against the advance of a host at whose hands they dreaded a repetition of the havoc wrought by the lawless bands of Peter the Hermit and his self-chosen colleagues. Three weeks passed away in vain attempts to get over the difficulty. The Hungarian king demanded as a hostage Baldwin, the brother of the general. The demand was refused, and Godfrey put him to shame by surrendering himself. He asked only for a free passage and a free market. But although these were granted, it was not in his power to prevent some disorder and some depredations as his army or horde passed through the country. The mischief might have been much worse had not the Hungarian cavalry, acting professedly as a friendly escort, but really as cautious warders, kept close to the crusading hosts. At length they reached the gates of Philippopolis, and here Godfrey learned that Hugh of Vermandois, whose coming had been announced to the Greek emperor Alexius by four and twenty knights in golden armor, and who styled himself the brother of the king of kings and lord of all the Frankish hosts, was a prisoner within the walls of Constantinople. With Robert of Normandy and Robert of Flanders, 
with Stephen of Chartres and some lesser chiefs, Hugh had chosen to make his way through Italy, and the charms of that voluptuous land had a greater effect, it seems, in breaking up and corrupting their forces than the delights of Capua had in weakening the soldiers of Hannibal. With little regard to order, the chiefs determined to cross the sea as best they might. Hugh embarked at Bari, and if we may believe Anna Comnina, the historian and the worshipper of her father Alexius, his fleet was broken by a tempest, which shattered his own ship on the coast between Palos and Dyrrhachium, Durazzo, of which John Comnenus, the nephew of the emperor, was at this time the governor. The Frank chief was here detained until the good pleasure of Alexius should be known. That wary and cunning prince saw at once how much might be made of his prisoner, who was by his orders conducted with careful respect and ceremony to the capital. Kept here really as a hostage, but welcome to outward seeming as a friend, Hugh was so completely won by the charm of manner which Alexius well knew how and when to put on, that, paying him homage and declaring himself his man, he promised to do what he could to induce others to follow his example. From Philippopolis, Godfrey sent ambassadors to Alexius, demanding the immediate surrender of Hugh. The request was refused, and Godfrey resumed his march, treating the land through which he passed as an enemy's country, until by way of Adrianople he at length appeared before the walls of the capital at Christmastide, 1096. The fears of Alexius were aroused by the sight of a host so vast and so formidable. They quickened into terror as he thought of the armies which were still on their way under the command of Bohemond and Tancred. Of Godfrey, beyond the fact of his mission as a crusader, he knew little or nothing. But in Bohemond he saw one who claimed as his inheritance no small portion of his empire. This gathering of myriads, whom a false step on his part might convert into open enemies, was the result of his own entreaties urged through his envoys before Urban II in the Council of Piacenza, and his mind was divided between a feverish anxiety to hurry them on to their destination and so to rid himself of their hateful presence, and the desire to retain a hold not only on the crusading chiefs, but on any conquests which they might make in Syria. Hugh was sent back to Godfrey's camp, but the quarrel was patched up rather than ended. It was easier to rouse suspicion and jealousy than to restore friendship, but it was of the first importance for Alexius that he should secure the homage of the princes already gathered round his capital before the arrival of his ancient enemy, Bohemond. In this he succeeded, and a compact was made by which Alexius pledged them his word that he would supply them with food and aid them in their eastward march, and would protect all pilgrims passing through his dominions. On the other hand, the crusading chiefs, as already subjects of other sovereigns, gave their fealty to the emperor as their liege lord only for the time during which they might remain within his borders, and undertook to restore to him such of their conquests as had been recently wrested from the empire. The policy and the bribes of Alexius had overcome the opposition of Bohemond. He was to experience a stouter resistance from Raymond of Toulouse, who, though he had been the first to enlist, was the last to set out on his crusade. The Count of Toulouse scarcely regarded himself as the vassal, even of the French king. He was ready, he said, to be the friend of Alexius on equal terms, but he would not declare himself to be his man. On this point he was immovable, although Bohemond tried the effect of a threat, which was never forgiven, that if the quarrel came to blows, he should be found on the side of the emperor. But Alexius soon saw that in Raymond he had to deal with an enthusiast as sincere and persistent as Godfrey. He took his measures accordingly, winning the heart of the old warrior, 
although he failed to compel his obedience. While Alexius was busied in dealing with Godfrey and Raymond, Bohemond and Tancred, he was not less anxiously occupied with the task of sending across the Bosporus the swarms which might soon become an army of devouring locusts round his own capital. It was easier to give them a welcome than to get rid of them, and more than two months had passed since Christmas, when the followers of Godfrey found themselves on the soil of Asia. Godfrey's men had no sooner been landed on the eastern side of the Bosporus than all the vessels which had transported them were brought back to the western shore. With great astuteness and at the cost of large gifts, Alexius in like manner freed the neighborhood of his capital from the invading multitudes. As fast as they came, they were hurried across, and the emperor breathed more freely when, on the Feast of Pentecost, not a single Latin pilgrim remained on the European shore. The danger of conflict had throughout been imminent, and the danger arose not so much from the fact that the crusaders were armed men marching through the country of professed allies, but from the thorough antagonism between Greeks and Latins in modes of thought and habits of life. Nor must we forget the vast gulf which separated the Eastern from the Western clergy. The clergy of the West despised their brethren of the East for their cowardly submission to the secular arm. These, in their turn, shrunk with horror from the sight of bishops, priests, and monks riding with blood-stained weapons over fields of battle, and exhibiting at other times an ignorance equal to their ferocity. The strength and valor of the crusaders were soon to be tested. They were now face to face with the Turks, on whose cowardice Urban II had enlarged with so much complacency before the Council of Clermont. The Sultan David, or Khalij Arslan, placed his family and treasures in his capital city of Nice and retreated with 50,000 horsemen to the mountains, whence he swooped down from time to time on the outposts of the Christians. By these, his city was formally invested, and for seven weeks it was assailed to little purpose by the old instruments of Roman warfare, while some of the besiegers shot their weapons from the hill on which were moldering the bones of the fanatic followers of Peter. It was protected to the west by the Ascanian Lake, and so long as the Turks had command of this lake, they felt themselves safe. But Alexius sent thither on sledges a large number of boats, and the city, subjected to a double blockade, submitted to the emperor, who was in no way anxious to see the crusaders masters of the place. The crusaders were making ready for the last assault when they saw the imperial banner floating on the walls. Their disappointment at the escape of the miscreants, or unbelievers, for so they delighted to speak of them, was vented in threats which seemed to bode a renewal of the old troubles. But Alexius, with gifts, which added force to his words, professed that his only desire now, as it had been, was to forward them safely on their journey. Nor had they to go many stages before they found themselves again confronted with their adversary. The conflict took place near the Phrygian Doraleon, and seemed at first to portend dire defeat to the crusaders. More than once the issue of the day seemed to be turned by the indomitable personal bravery of the Norman Robert, of Tancred, and of Bohemond, and when even those seemed likely to be borne down, they received timely succors from Godfrey and Hugh of Vermandois, from Bishop Adhemar of Puy, and from Raymond, Count of Toulouse. Still the Turks held out, and it seemed likely that they would long hold out, when the appearance of the last division of Raymond's army filled them with the fear that a new host was upon them. The Crusaders had won a considerable victory. Three thousand knights belonging to the enemy had been slain, and Khalij Arslan was hurrying away to enlist the services of his kinsmen. Meanwhile, the Latin hosts were sweeping onward. Hundreds died from the heat, 
and dogs or goats took the place of the baggage horses which had perished. At length, Tancred with his troop found himself before Tarsus, the birthplace and the home of that single-hearted apostle who long ago had preached a gospel strangely unlike the creed of the Crusaders. Following rapidly behind him, Baldwin saw with keen jealousy the banner of the Italian chief floating on its towers, and insisted on taking the precedence. Tancred pleaded the choice of the people and his own promise to protect them, but the intrigues of Baldwin changed their humor, and the rejection of Tancred by the men of Tarsus was followed by an attempt at private war between Tancred and Baldwin, in which the troops of Tancred were overborne. So early was the first harvest of murderous discord reaped among the holy warriors of the cross. It was ruin, however, to stay where they were, and the main army again began its march, to undergo once more the old monotony of hardship and peril. A very small force would have sufficed to disorganize and rout them as they clamored over the defiles of Mount Taurus, nor could Raymond, recovering from a terrible illness, or Godfrey, suffering from wounds inflicted by a bear, have done much to help them, but for the present their enemies were dismayed, and Baldwin, brother of Godfrey, hastened with eagerness to obey a summons which besought him to aid the Greek or Armenian tyrant of Edessa. As Alexius had done to his brother, so this chief welcomed Baldwin as his son, but Baldwin, having once entered into the city, cared nothing for the means which had brought him thither, and the death of his adoptive father was followed by the establishment at Edessa of a Latin principality which lasted for fifty-four, or, as some have thought, forty-seven years. Baldwin had anticipated the unconditional surrender of Samosata, but the Turkish governor had some of the Edessenes in his power, and he refused to give up the city except on the payment of ten thousand gold pieces. The Turk shortly afterward fell into Baldwin's hands and was put to death. End of section 31